Welcome to OECD Podcast, where policy meets people. The COVID-19 vaccine is finally here. Finding the vaccine was the first step, but the COVID-19 pandemic poses many challenges about international cooperation in distributing a vaccine, public confidence, digitalization in healthcare, and many more. How can we produce enough vaccines to make an impact? How can we ensure that the vaccine is accessible for everyone? And once accessible, does the general public have enough trust in the vaccine to take it? I'm Robin Allison Davis, and you're listening to OECD Podcasts. International cooperation has played a large role in the creation of the vaccine, but it is needed more than ever for the road ahead. One example is the COVAX facility, set up by the Coalition for Epidemic Preparedness Innovations, GAVI, in the World Health Organization, the COVAX facility was set up to bring vaccines to low- and middle-income countries. A little later in this podcast, we'll hear from GAVI CEO Seth Berkley, Joanne Liu from the International Panel for Pandemic Preparedness and Response, and Melissa Fleming from the United Nations. But first, Mark Pearson, Deputy Director of Employment, Labor, and Social Affairs at the OECD, says that one thing undermining the international cooperation effort are the bilateral agreements made by wealthy countries in order to get priority access to the vaccine. Of course, one of the reasons why everything has been so quick has also just been the huge amounts of money that has gone into vaccines development. The $10 billion that the uh, the U.S. government has put in to fund 100% of the research and development and manufacturing capacity for selected vaccines, the huge amounts of money that has gone in from the European Commission, from the various different countries there, with the Melinda Gates Foundation. A lot of that non-U.S. money, at least, has gone into something called the WHO ACT Accelerator. That certainly has been a way of collectively funding some of the research and developments. Nevertheless, an awful lot of funding has gone from governments to domestic development. And we, we must acknowledge that. I mean, Germany, for example, 750 million euros going to BioNTech, Pfizer, another 300 million to the CureVac. A, a lot of bilateral funding has gone to domestic producers. And, and this has an impact because, of course, the reasons why countries did that once they've done it they do expect to have priority access um, when a, if a vaccine is developed, these sorts of sweethearts deals. So most arrangements with manufacturers to fund vaccine R&D and secure supply, they are bilateral. They haven't been multilateral. These obviously are not going to be efficient for researchers because they, they can't rely on collective funding. They can only rely on funding often from one source. It's not been efficient for producers, increases their risks. It's certainly not been efficient in the global scale from the point of view of governments. This idea of some sort of collective arrangements of pooling risks would have been much more efficient. And what are the consequences of, of those bilateral arrangements? Well, there's been some sort of bidding war about who gets priority access to vaccines. High-income countries negotiating supply agreements at the moment, rushing in to try and get access to all the different vaccines that are available in principle. Even by August, European Union, UK, United States had already, in principle, secured enough doses of vaccine candidates at that stage 
uh, in order to be able to vaccinate their population three times over, assuming that they're all successful, which of course they may not be. But that means that they are, if you like, tying up the, the supply of vaccines. Now, some low and middle income countries, Brazil, India, trying to gain priority access through hosting clinical trials and licensing technology for, for local manufacturing, that's one route. But many low and middle income countries have to wait until capacity becomes available. Waiting until capacity becomes available could take a significant amount of time, delaying the end to the pandemic. According to Seth Berkeley, CEO of Gavi, the Vaccine Alliance, getting vaccines to low and middle income countries is essential for ending the pandemic. As you may know, Gavi traditionally works on vaccines for low income countries, and we provide vaccines for more than half of the world's children and have worked with, you know, all the companies to do that and have managed to, um, you know, do that, I think, fairly successfully. When this disease appeared, we thought about vaccines for the developing world, but we were worried there would be no vaccines for the developing world, that they would be bought up by wealthy countries, which, of course, a significant amount was done. And our goal was to do pooling of funding and pooling of risk. And the goal was not to have a portfolio of nine vaccines, but to have access to any vaccine that had promise and could diversify the risk and would be able to bring special characteristics. And the idea was to try to reduce a number of bilateral deals for all the inefficiencies that come with that. The other important um, discussion really is this one of looking at how you distribute doses. So a study showed if you took 2 billion doses, and that's the goal we have for 2021, we came up with that because that's what we thought was possible to produce. If you took those 2 billion doses and you gave it to, let's say, 50 high-income high countries, you would reduce deaths by a little over 30%. If you took those same 2 billion doses and you distributed them to all countries proportional to population, you would reduce deaths by more than 60%. And so one of the other critical arguments around uh, COVAX was take your doses, distribute them, get them to health workers, get them to high-risk groups, dampen down the epidemic before you try to vaccinate whole countries. And the reason I want to emphasize that is because that is a very different strategy than the first strategies that were announced, which was getting vaccines for countries and vaccinating the entire populations. It may be that ultimately we have to get there, but if we were to do that strategy, a small number of countries would think they're protected. But of course, if there's a raging pandemic going on in the rest of the world, you can't resume commerce, you can't resume travel, you can't resume tourism, and you are not going to be safe. So we really are only safe if everyone's safe. And that's really what we've been trying to do here. We're only safe if everyone's safe, and rich countries vaccinating their entire populations won't solve the pandemic. This brings us back to the importance of international cooperation. I don't think that in terms of international cooperation, we've uncovered that much yet. We spoke with Joanne Liu, former president of Doctors Without Borders and member of the International Panel for Pandemic Preparedness and Response. And she emphasized how much work still needs to be done to improve international cooperation in the fight against COVID-19. I have to commend the work that has been done and how the world tried to come together uh, with respect to COVID-19. 
that would be unfair to not acknowledge the amazing and heroic effort and attempt to change the game, but um, it won't not be completely changed. And I think that what I'd like to say is, is when we think about the international cooperation right now is the fact that um, when it's on a voluntary basis, it's a lot of legwork. And it's been a lot of legwork to get all those 180 plus countries, you know, to chip in in the COVAX. Why are we failing in terms of, of model to a certain extent? Is the fact that when you put the same people around to think about new model, it's unlikely that you're going to find new solution. I think that COVAX is really bringing a new way of looking at how we are enacting collaboration, but as well, it's being undermined by all the bilateral, I would say, deals that have been meant for which we have very little transparency and information. And so therefore, it's basically, you know, as if we, we've created a big feast and the low middle income country are sitting at the, the kid table and they're going to get leftovers. And I will not say, you know, it was a missed opportunity in terms of, of changing, you know, the relation with the industry. I think honestly that it's more like giving up on a historical moment to change the game. The COVAX facility has secured 2 billion doses for low- and middle-income countries. But a big challenge remains. Mark Pearson stressed that intellectual property rights, in particular, research and development, can still jeopardize access to vaccines in some parts of the world. And huge amounts of public funding for the vaccine R&D didn't come with conditions on intellectual property rights. So in other words, the taxpayers were bearing the R&D risks, but in principle at least, patent holders now have market prices. Now, this is not pointing a, a nasty finger at the manufacturers. I mean, AstraZeneca has committed to supplying its vaccine at no profit for orders made in 2020 and has licensed production in India. Moderna commitments there to share the patents for the duration of pandemic. Pfizer a little less clear what their policy should be. Still, again, this is an area where you can't help feeling more international collaboration could have managed things better. There was a facility in place, this CTAP, the COVID technology access pool, uh, which would have been a way that intellectual property could have been shared. There was big, big uptake by countries, but not the countries with major R&D and manufacturing capacity. So this was a missed opportunity in how we could have managed the R&D rights for uh, new vaccines. I'm really um, surprised that that keeps coming up as an issue in vaccines. Seth Berkeley offers a differing view from Mark Pearson on intellectual property rights. It is not the issue on vaccines. It may be in drugs, it may be in other things, but the issue on vaccines is know-how. So when you transfer technology, it's about the know-how. It's about the thousand pages of ways to produce things and assays and steps that you need for regulatory approval. Without that, it'll take an enormous time to reproduce all that. If there was a step that was patented, that could be worked around, but that's not the problem. The problem is know-how. And so we've seen 
transfer of technology and rapid, rapid production when companies have worked with the companies in the developing world and been able to help them do it. And right now there are doses of multiple vaccines made in Indian companies in record time because there has been cooperation. Without that, you know, it's just not gonna happen. So I just think that's chasing the wrong problem. Still, Joanne Liu insists that international collaboration could have aided intellectual property issues. She cites developed countries' refusal to waive patents on COVID-19 drugs and vaccines after India and South Africa's request. If it wasn't an issue of IP, so why did we make such a big fuss about the request of India and South Africa about the waiver on trips? And of course, it's about know-how. And then so it might be as well our historical moment to start to think about a collective manufacturing site where we're going to be able to do scale up because the way the models are now are still somehow shaped on sort of a charity model. And we know that charity is not sustainable. I can live, you know, with the fact that the issue might not be as much as the IP as we may think. But then I think we have the responsibility to make know-how a common good. If there's something, you know, that if we want to change the game for the next time around, let's make it a commitment that the know-how will be a common good, that we're going to, you know, be able to hack up productivity everywhere in terms of having what I would like to call a sort of a collective manufacturing platform. And I think that would be a real game changer, that commitment. But now that the vaccine is here, what about the challenge of vaccine confidence? Confidence in vaccine safety and efficacy is shifting rapidly, and figures don't look good. According to a Welcome Trust poll, in France, one-third of people think that vaccines are unsafe, and one-fifth think that they are ineffective. And conspiracy theories are spreading at an alarming rate. There's this saying that I always have in the back of my mind, that statistics are human beings with the tears dried off. And there's one challenge, and that is, um, you know, to create empathy, to get people to care. Melissa Fleming, Undersecretary General for Global Communications at the United Nations, thinks that we need to engage directly with those who have lost trust in vaccines. The additional challenge that we have in a global public health crisis that we're in now is not just getting people to care, um, it's getting people to trust. And when you have different actors who are perhaps more savvy in the social media space than the public institutions, the scientists um, who actually, you know, have the science, have the data. It's very difficult to compete. And what we're finding is the backdrop is an environment of mass fear, mass unease, um, worry because of the pandemic. We have the first global pandemic in the social media age and we have a media environment that is polluted. Good information circulating with bad information. And then you have the public who is you know, massively online seeing first on their social media feeds sometimes slickly produced videos like the pandemic or more, more recently, there's one in France that's three hours long but has gone viral with incredible production qualities and presented like a documentary, but full of conspiracies, but it's so very difficult to compete with. What we're seeing is that 
again, people are hungry for good information. They're just not, uh, they're not finding it. So there is what first draft news is calling a kind of data deficit. To be honest, this surprises me. I think that there is lots of data out there. I just think it's like in PDF documents where on page 215 might be the nugget that the, the public needs. And so this is why we've launched this initiative called Verified, which is to do two things. One is to take that science-based information and to produce it in ways that is social media optimized, that is consumable, that is entertaining to engage with, but is based on science that has the best public health guidance and also is channeled to those public information gaps or where misinformation is dominating in languages that people understand and in groups and um, on social media where information is traveling. But the second is misinformation literacy. So we have a campaign called uh, Pause, uh, Take Care Before You Share, which is based on behavioral science. We are trying to make this uh, a new kind of norm, like don't drink and drive, but a social norm that people have in the back of their heads. Oh, I'm seeing this information. It's making my heart palpitate. <laughs> it's playing on my emotions. What do I do with it? Actually, it might be too good to be true. Let me go look at the source. Uh, let me see you know, where it came from and perhaps hesitate before we share. That will go a long way to slowing the spread. You know, I woke up this morning, or maybe it was yesterday or last night, to the news that, you know, 250,000 Americans had died from COVID-19. You know, how do you just get your head around that? I heard the, the news anchors trying to describe it as, you know, these are sons and daughters and fathers and human beings. And, and I've seen the New York Times do a, you know, very admirable effort at, you know, taking... Um, thousands of uh, mini obituaries with the image and bite-sized uh, descriptions of people's lives and just kind of put together humanizing these deaths. We need to humanize COVID-19, the impact of COVID-19, but also humanize the people who are trying to overcome it for the greater public good. Um, and these are the, the public health officials. These are the doctors. These are the creators of vaccines, the scientists in the labs, and these are the people who will be coming into your communities to help convince you to get vaccinated. So the human story is absolutely essential because we know that people just don't feel anything when they hear statistics. They go numb. It's a phenomenon called psychic numbing. But when they hear the stories, they do feel something and they are more willing to learn, to absorb. So I'll leave you just with one thing that we're doing uh, that we hope is going to, to help. We launched through our verified initiative, a, a project called Team Halo. If you can look it up and, and you could follow um, the scientists that we've identified. So far, we've, you know, we started out with, a, with 10 scientists in labs around the world who are working to develop vaccines. Now the vaccine has been clouded in kind of dark mystery and it has names like Operation Warp Speed that is certainly was not very well chosen if you want to build trust in a, the safety of a vaccine. These are scientists who are will, were willing to be trained on TikTok, were willing to serve as guides into this mysterious world of the lab where vaccines are being developed and to talk to audiences on a kind of 
regular basis and explain what is this process and answer their questions. And so far it's really taken off and we hope to really scale this initiative so that we might even have thousands of scientists around the world who are speaking about this effort and just in their languages, in their communities and bringing people in and just being real about the science, answering questions, humanizing. So that's just one of the efforts, but of course a lot more needs to be done. The end is in sight, but a lot more needs to be done, particularly with international cooperation to ensure the end of the COVID-19 pandemic. To learn more about the OECD's work on COVID-19 and the role of international cooperation, please go to www.oecd.org coronavirus. To listen to other OECD podcasts, find us on iTunes, Spotify, Google Podcasts, and soundcloud.com slash OECD.